They say you can learn a lot from a person by how they live. By watching their actions and reactions, how they respond in the moment, what they do in the face of opposition. And if this person is worthy of imitation, worthy of becoming like, worthy of taking our cues, the only way then is to get to know them by following their directions and by listening to their instructions. And if we want to be just like Jesus, we need to get to know him too. We need to read how he responded in the moment, what he did in the face of opposition, how he lived, how he spoke, his actions and reactions. You want to be just like Jesus? Follow him. Remarkable. We live at a time where words are just exaggerated. They're over-the-top words all the time for just about everything. But the word remarkable, not one that I use very often, is the one that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up as I prepare for this message. Little things, like how remarkable it is that Mitch and I don't talk about the order of service and as far as the songs. We, none of that. It never happens. And yet that song speaks to the symmetry between the incarnation, which we celebrated just five days ago, and the passage we're going to be, we've been in the book of Mark for 44 weeks. And God, only God does the little things like this. He has us in our 45th week looking at Mark chapter 11. And specifically Palm Sunday, which if you do the math is five days before Jesus will die and sacrifice himself for us. Five days ago, incarnation. Five days from our passage today, Jesus doing what he came for, which is what that song just talked about. And it's that kind of remarkable. Remarkable like this is not just the last Sunday of 2019. It's also the last Sunday of a decade. Now, we're going to talk a lot about looking back and looking forward today, but I will ask you, where were you in 2009, at the end of 2009? I find it remarkable that I was still running an international software company and we were in Tampa and yet that the Lord would see to it that in the course of the coming 10 years I would wind up get a load of this this is in my fifth year come February I'll have been here five years you guys y'all didn't kick me out <laughs> five years now in 2009 in my wildest imagination this wasn't on the dance card None of this. And yet this has turned into being one of the richest and most rewarding times in my life and the relationships and all of you and getting to know you and being with our family and so on. It's just remarkable. So we've come back to that word several times today because we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11. But before we do, yes, we've been studying the book of Mark. But, and last week, John talked about Bartimaeus and healing Bartimaeus and he did a great job and there's things that he brought up that I'm going to bring up also today and at the end of that passage at the end of chapter 10 he begins by saying Jesus is now turning his attention to Jerusalem he's in the town of Jericho and John had this slide which John doesn't ever do that, and he did that this time. By the way, John is in New York with his family, and it was weird to me that his, his aisle 
stayed empty until Tiffany showed up. They just were all waiting for them to show up. We are creatures of habit. But Jesus started turning himself, his, his attention to Jerusalem. And, and the picture that he showed us was of, I think we have it here, it is, it's uphill. I mean, it's really uphill, which in his day was no small task. Today, you can take the 36 or the 63 bus out of Jericho, pick it up at the Damascus Gate in Jericho, and in less than an hour, 14 miles, you're in Jerusalem. Not the case. For me personally, and I don't know about you, I have climbed a 2,800-foot mountain, not 3,000 feet, but a 2,800-foot mountain. It was in Scottsdale. It's called Camelback Mountain, and if you're not familiar with it, it's this really neat mountain that looks just like a camel. And if you're in Arizona heat and you're climbing uphill, not too different from the Middle East, I might add, you'll whip by the time you get to the top of that thing. Jesus in his day, I went up, when I went up Camelback, I wasn't thinking at all about what Jesus had on his mind as he was heading to Jerusalem because Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem he knew what awaited him the people around him not so much but he did so not only was it a hard and tiresome and difficult day making that journey it was also hot miserable and he had the burden of everything that awaited him in Jerusalem on his mind Before we get into it again, I want to just make one other point about Bethany. Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem through Bethany and Bethpage. And at that time, it, just as today, Bethany is a suburb of a very close nearby suburb of Jerusalem. Outside the gate, by the way, if you're kind of curious about proximity, if you're at the Dairy Queen and you decide to walk, to Belks, that's a mile and a half. So it's the same mile and a half that it was on this map. Now you kind of have a sense for how far Bethany was. And, and, and for those of you who are tr Bible trivia nuts, the name in Arabic for the town Bethany in Arabic is place of Lazarus. So you Bible students would know that Bethany is, should be familiar to you because it's the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. All right, so that's what we're talking about here. So today, we're going to spend the majority of our time considering the two disciples that Jesus sent ahead of him in our text. And we're going to look at them in contrast to where our life has been in the last year to 10 years and where we're headed in the next 10 years in our faith walk. That's an awful lot to cover, so let's pray and then get at our text. Father, thank you for this opportunity um, to once again speak at the end of a year and to focus our attention not just on the text and this lovely text that you've provided, but to take that text and to use it as a means for you to speak to our hearts and, and our service to you as we look at the upcoming year and decade, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. To our text. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem... 
to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Each one... As, as many of, your, of the Bible students in here know, all of the various stories are not included in all of the Gospels. This one is the triumphal entry. It's referred to as the triumphal entry. And I have to confess, for many of the early years of my Christianity, I really didn't get why it was a triumphal entry. I mean, we all know Jesus dies in a matter of days. Not necessarily what I would consider a triumph. And Mark's account so beautifully and matter-of-factly presents the events that we can easily miss why this is a triumphal entry. And that, I would submit to you, is because we tend to see and hear through eyes and ears that are immersed in the culture around us. It is very difficult for us to see beyond the white noise of the culture that is around us to see exactly what it is that's going on, even in the scriptures that we read. We're going to come back to that, but before we do, we're going to start with these two unnamed disciples. Well, let's start with the word disciple, which from which we get the word discipleship. And if any of you are curious, because you know I have a beef with church words, it's a church word. Disciple came out of the Middle Ages, and it means to be taught by someone and to teach, right? So what distinguishes a disciple from a follower, you can be one but it, it, and not necessarily be both. You can be a follower, but a follower only means that you're following someone. It doesn't mean that you're learning anything from them, and it doesn't mean that you're going to teach anybody. But Mark just, just includes it. He said, two disciples. Jesus called two disciples and sent them on into the village. They were unnamed. And while they were unnamed, Mark refers to them as disciples. They had learned enough following Jesus that when he gave them instructions, they immediately went about doing it. And in the process, here we are, 2,000 years later, they're still teaching us. So, 
they certainly fulfilled that element of it. Now, I remember the very first time I heard this story. I wasn't saved. And I just remember thinking, Jesus is going to tell, he just told them to go steal a colt. Right? I mean, did he not? I mean, he just said, go into the town. You're going to find a colt. Take it. And in my book, when you are going to borrow something, you ask first. Now, my brother-in-law is one of the few people around that is, is, doesn't have to ask me for anything. He can go into my workshop and take whatever he wants. I know he's going to bring it back. But in this story, first reading, go steal a colt. All right. Now, before you think I'm a heretic, well, I was. At the time, I wasn't saved. It, all of this was pretty gibberish to me. But I understand now that as God, Jesus owns everything, so you can't steal from yourself. So, I mean, I get that. But these disciples didn't know that. These disciples were given directions. And I want to remind everybody here that in that day, think of it as I was looking at it as a Roman, all right? In that day, if you stole livestock, what was the, what was the penalty? Well, it, no, it was death. You steal someone's livestock, you die. Plain and simple. It's very cut, it, it, it cuts down a lot on livestock stealing. But understand this, those disciples didn't know that. They were going into a village ruled by Romans and told, go take a colt. No question to I would have minimally have expected them to go, uh, are you sure? Nothing. Jesus gave them instructions. Off they go. Now, we don't know anything about these unnamed disciples. And if you read any commentaries, there's speculation galore. We don't even know if they were guys. Jesus' followers and disciples were male and female. You know, it, 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 we tend to kind of fall into that trap. But we, here's one of the spec, okay, you want to speculate? Here's, I'll speculate for you. I think they're unnamed because we don't know if they weren't the group, part of the group that turned on Jesus in a matter of days and were calling for his crucifixion. Why? Simple. Jesus had been all along in their minds reading and listening to their religious group. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for what? Oust the Romans. Right? He was coming as king. That was going to be the deal. They were really, I mean, these guys had to be pumped up. Guys, listen to me. I'm already doing it. But, you know, as a Yankee, guys are both male and female. So we don't know. All right? So it's silly to me to speculate. Here's what we can all agree on, whether you disagree with anything I've said in the last few minutes, is Jesus told these two disciples, go into that Roman-controlled town, and despite any of the things that might happen to you, grab the colt, and by the way, if anybody says anything, don't worry about it. Just tell them that I have need of it, and we'll return it immediately, and they'll let you go, and what happened? They did what he said, and here's the important bit, and what Jesus said happened. Because what, how did our text read? The people that were in the street said, hey, what are you doing? I can just imagine in that very exact moment how each one of us might have felt, you know, 
Put yourself in that position. You're one of the disciples. You think, hey, Jesus is coming. He's going to be in charge. We're with him. We're on the, on, we're on the winning team. And we're going to go in there. We're going to do this. You know, then they say, hey, what are you doing? Well, in that very second, I don't know about you, but I would be thinking, uh-oh. And everything happened just the way Jesus said it would. We'll come back to that. Perhaps you even thought triumphal entry. You know, I found this little picture. I like this picture of the triumphal entry. The, these two might have been just so pumped up and, and, and thought, you know what, Jesus is going to be king. We don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, we might die if we get, you know, if the Romans grab us because he's taking care of the Romans. We're all jazzed up. Well, yeah, maybe. That's why you could come up with that's the reason for the triumphal entry. That's not really it. To be sure, Jesus entered Jerusalem to great pomp. I mean, if you, as, as I was reading it, you know, people are grabbing, they're cutting down limbs and throwing it down, and, and you know, because the streets were pretty muddy and nasty. And, and here in our passage this morning, the only thing that happens is Jesus walks straight into the temple, doesn't say a word on this particular occasion, and he walks out, goes in, comes out, takes the 12 back to Bethany. So getting back to our two disciples, we have no idea who they were or what motivated them. We can just all understand that Jesus told them to do something. They did it. And we have recorded that it happened just the way Jesus said it would. But today we also know that Jesus didn't do anything about the Romans. They didn't know that. They had no idea. Back to remarkable. Their obedience in light of the reality that I as a lost person could see immediately but now that we see through the eyes of looking back, their obedience in unquestioned just he said it, they did it, is remarkable. Why is obedience like that so elusive for us today? Speaking for myself, doesn't characterize my everyday faith walk. Anybody remember this? Got that? Got that? Got that? Back on the first Sunday of this year, John gave me the opportunity and the privilege to present our Love Your Neighbor Challenge. Those of you who are new to Grace would know it, but here's the essence of the challenge. Get to know your neighbors by name, and then look for opportunities to be contagious. Look for chances to share the gospel and live your life out in front of your neighbors in such a way so that they will ask you questions, so that they will be interested enough 
So de depending on no matter what, what kind of personality type you had, we, were, we, we kind, of, kind of framed it up. The challenge was, if you get to know them by name, people, whether they say they like their name or not, everybody loves their name, studies have been done. And the simple truth is, is if you can talk to your neighbor by name, you will be given an opportunity to share the good news that you are aware of. So here's my question. Fast forward to today. That was the first Sunday in 2019. Speaking of first Sundays, Jeremy mentioned that Life Prep U was going to be the first Sunday in January. That would be the fifth, and that will not be the day that we start Life Prep U. <laughs> we will be starting Life Prep U on the 12th, and we'll be doing our Money Matters look and money help conversation and about stewardship. So just to clarify that. But going back... That was the first Sunday, now we're at the last Sunday. And it's not just the last Sunday of 2019, it's the last Sunday of the last decade. Here's my question, how did you do with Love Your Neighbor? Just a real point blank, end of year kind of, how'd you do? Good. Did it excite you? Did it initially excite you and then it waned? You know, do you see the parable of the seeds and the sower in the, the way you responded to the love your neighbor challenge? Did you make any progress and how do you feel about that? These are uncomfortable questions. I get it. You know, it's part of my duty. You know, I get to do that every once in a while, and I try. Matter of fact, I talked to a friend of mine, and I said, pray for me for this sermon because I don't want the words that I pick to become the issue. I just really want people, to, the Spirit to speak through me and to speak to you. I'm not looking to have, have you feel bad. I'm never looking for anybody to feel bad. When I look back and I look forward, the only use I have for looking back is so I don't make the same mistakes that I've made when I go forward. I'm interested in going forward, and I'm interested in you going forward. This is not about a guilt trip. This is about asking you, where are you with respect to your faith walk and our two unnamed disciples? Can you say, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus said it, I'm doing it. I can't. Which leads to the following text, which I bring up. I'm... Again, four years, I get to bring this up. I just, I, it's just amazing how time flies. You know, you think about the fact that four years ago, we just learned about this gym being in, unusable, and here we are wrapping up the Building to Serve campaign this year. We're in here. Here we are. Campus has all been, you know, has had a facelift. It, it's a remarkable, all of this stuff that has happened. But 2 Corinthians 13.5, I bring it up every year. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? I hate tests. I don't know where you are on tests. Not my favorite thing ever. But minimally once a year, we really do need to take stock of where are we? Frankly, I don't recommend that you do it constantly. I, I, because you need waypoints. You kind of need to have markers to kind of see, am, am I making progress or am I regressing? 
You know, is, are the things going the way I had hoped for? Do I need to adjust the trajectory of even in business? I mean, we do that continually in business. You roll quarters and you keep things and you kind of see where you're going. Well, you should do that in your spiritual life. John brought this up last week, but frankly, I just got to ask you, are you stuck? Are you dissatisfied with your progress? These are the questions that we should be asking ourselves. And here's a bigger question. How do you know you're doing such a great job of examining yourself? We live in a time where culturally no one wants anybody in their business, even in the church. Who are you to judge me? I get it. I really do get it. I'm as guilty of it as you are. It's, it's one of these things where what's my natural reaction, which draws me back to the, um, the, the fact that I said earlier, eyes and ears that are immersed in culture. Eyes and ears immersed in culture. Culturally, the things that bombard us on a continuing basis have immersed us to the degree that they blind us to the things that God is doing. That's their intention. Their intention is the cultural messaging is, is dominated by messaging that's intended to keep you from doing exactly what our two unnamed disciples did. All right, to, see, to know exactly what God wants from us and to just go and do it. Earlier this month, a group of us in Life Prep U just did three weeks. We took a brief look at one chapter in a book, a disturbing little book that's titled, You Are What You Love. Now, you should know that for the first 20 years of my faith walk, I struggled, struggled with this idea of loving Jesus. I, I mean, I'm just admitting it to you. 20 years. And I did what a lot of you would, might have done. I studied the Greek. John and I, we talked about that. You know, we, I studied the Greek and I got it. Agape, phileo, eros, Philadelphia. I, I got it. And like a many of you, I settled on agape, right? Caring. We talked about it over the summer. You know, 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, yeah. And yet, while I grew more intellectually comfortable with this idea of loving Jesus, my faith walk was and continued to fall short of the two unnamed disciples. I got it. Mentally, had it. Comfortable. Okay, yeah, I can say I love Jesus, you know, and not squirm. Okay? Why were the two disciples in our text willing to risk civil disobedience for Jesus? And sure, we can make the case that maybe it was anticipation that, they, you know, Jesus was going to be kicking out the Romans. They really didn't have any threat. We don't know that. But the book makes the case that you are what you love. That is what we want. 
we crave shapes what we do more than what we think, know, and believe. That's worth repeating. What we crave and want shapes what we do more than what we think, more than what we know, more than what we believe. Most of us, if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't love, crave, and desire what we know God desires for us and from us. If we're honest, we simply don't do what we know, what we've read. We ask for forgiveness. Those are all good things. That's not my point. My point is, it's not what you crave. It's not what you long for. Now, Scripture is clear. What God wants for us is to desire what he wants. That's what Jesus did. Consider John chapter 5, verses 19, verse 19. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does. That's the love that had eluded me my entire life. And I might also add that it also explains the love that I have for that woman right there. Because I wanted to be with her. I longed to be with her whenever I wasn't with her. It wasn't an intellectual. It wasn't intellectual. Right? It wasn't like I just said I decided to love her. And it wasn't some, you know, emotional, sappy kind of feeling thing. It was inside me. And any of you who are married to someone that you feel that way about, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's you want to be with that person. And if your relationship isn't marked by that, then you understand exactly what I'm talking about with regard to a faith walk that isn't driven by what you long for. Your faith walk is being driven by what you think you should be doing. Not for what you long for. Huge difference. This was a aha. I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it. This was, I read that first chapter and I'm going, there it is. Because I've never loved Jesus like I love her. I've admitted it freely. I've admitted the fact that I don't understand why I don't. And it's because I was thinking and I was using my noggin. You need to be able to think. You were created to think. Thinking is not a bad thing. Thinking is not the ultimate thing. Thinking is what you need to do as you're sorting your way through why you long for such things. What do you long for? That will explain what you do. Because Every single one of us, I've, ne I've never seen an exception, including the most depraved people on the planet. The, we, we all look at them, we judge them, and here's the thing that's common. They just do what they long to do. God, when he created us in his image, created us to long something. It's the empty bit that we talk about from time to time. It's the part that drives you, drives you to what you do. That is the love that God is looking for, for us to crave it, want it, and desire it, 
And the it is what he wants for us. I love the way the message put this. I'm telling you straight. What the father does, the son does. That's the way I want my faith walk to be. What Jesus does, I do. Plain and simple. Now, I'm not there yet. This side of glory, none of us are going to nail it, just to kind of be clear. This side of glory, each one of us are somewhere on that faith walk. The question is, if you're stuck, is what are you doing about it? I read an article recently as I was preparing for this by Noelle Piper, who is John Piper's wife. And I'm paraphrasing here, but she captures this beautifully. God changes our heart, how we live, what we do, and our traditions from then on let others know what he did for us. That's pretty good. You know? We talked about landing the plane earlier, Jeremy and I. I mean, every one of us who get up here, we get so energized. We, get, we have so much that we have when we prepared that it's really hard to figure out where you're going to put this down because, you know, you can't keep going and you can't keep going. But desiring what the Father desires for us requires us to reform our longings. What do you long for? Over the course of the next year and beyond, we, your staff, will be working on reforming the longings of our heart. One of the keys to our longings is allowing other folks to speak into your life. The word is accountability. We have accountability in some measure. There's no question about it. We have accountability in K groups. I love the people in my K group. I love them. I love them. I look forward to spending time with them. And they, by virtue of the fact that we get to know one another, have permission to speak into my life to a certain degree. To a certain degree. Okay? Okay? Keeping it real. But we have, the church is no different than culture. Remember, we're a most in culture. We basically have this basic, this, this first line of defense, which basically said, you poke the bear, get expect, you can expect to get poked back. And that's what fight clubs is about. And I'm glad to see that the women are looking into creating fight clubs because, yes, I'm old school. God created men and women different for a reason. And when men get with men, they can share their troubles easier and better and more honestly than when they're in mixed company. And the same goes for women. Fight clubs take accountability to the next level. That's not good enough. Because I'm generally acknowledged here, I'm one of the pastors here for crying out loud, and I struggle with the longing that I have in my heart to be exactly like these unnamed disciples. So, all I can say is this. I'm excited to see how the Lord directs us in 2020 and the next decade as we look at extending accountability beyond our K groups and our fight clubs. Because with Scripture, it starts with Scripture. If you're not in your Bible daily, I mean, 
I have to say, the survey that we took was encouraging. Encouraging and excitement aren't necessarily strategies, right? They're energy. They're energy that needs to be directed at something. And what we're going to be directing our energy at in the upcoming year, at least I know I am, and I'm sure that, because John's right here. I mean, he's been with me. He actually has been ahead of me in this. It's how do we extend accountability beyond K-groups and fight clubs so that we find more of us wanting to be like the unnamed disciples. It doesn't matter. It's like the, with the Casting Crown song. What my name is and who I am is irrelevant. It's are we glorifying the Lord and is that a longing of our heart as we continue to, he continues to give us breath? So for one thing, here's an actionable bit. Buy the book. It's 10 bucks on Amazon. It's not going to break you. And I, if you don't even get past the first chapter, I think you'll be rewarded for doing it. If the Lord puts an idea on your heart, this is very important because no one died and left John and the rest of the staff with the ideas that are going to lead us into the kind of ready, go. Do this, we do it. That type of longing in our heart I'll, we're all looking for ideas. You have ideas? Come see us. We will be delighted to spend some time with you. Hey, we'll even buy you that cup of coffee at the Bean. You're welcome. <laughs> scripture and accountability. Jesus was walking Scripture. He was with those unnamed disciples, and he said, go do something that was culturally a Breaking the law. I got news for you. In this country, we're going to be in that situation very soon. I love our country, but I'm not kidding myself. Even now, our country is facing dark days because dark days are ahead. I don't know when. doesn't matter. I'm not advocating civil disobedience. What I'm saying is, is that to maintain your faith, you may be at some point, it may be required of you to be civilly disobedient in order to live out your faith. Where are you on your faith walk? For me, my prayer for all of you is that, look, if I was running a software company a decade ago, and Bainbridge was just this quaint little town that I would visit every Thanksgiving to see my in-laws, who I love deeply. And God could say, in the midst of that decade, nope, that's gone. <laughs> we're taking that out of the picture, and we're moving you to Bainbridge. I would have never imagined, if you had said that to me in 2009, I would have laughed at you. And I'd have been the fool. God is going to do what God needs to do for his kingdom. The question, only question on the table is, will you be part of what he's doing? I know for me, and my prayer for all of you, is that we are. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I hope that you were honored by the word that you put on my heart. And as we consider our service to you and how we can possibly be used by you in the upcoming year and the, and the decade to come, that you would be the one glorified 
For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.